We're going to finish off a teaching series tonight, songs from the front line looking at the Psalms. Um, because of the way the service has gone, I'm going to try and condense 30 minutes into 15. So we're searching for a miracle tonight. If you know me, um, then you know we're searching for a miracle. So Holy Spirit, we pray you'd come and speak to us now. As we open up the scriptures, would you speak truth into our innermost being in such a way that it would bring not just life, but life in all its fullness. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we look at Psalms of Intimacy, the question I want to explore is what does intimacy look like in a time of crisis, Um, which is the time we find ourselves in right now? What does intimacy look like in a time of crisis? Um, So we're going to rewind the clock 15 or so years. I'm 25 years old at the time in this story I'm about to tell. I'm sat in a therapy session with my counsellor. The question my counsellor asks is, Pete, do you have any memories from childhood? childhood of experiencing shame. This wasn't week one, by the way, of counselling. It wasn't like, hey there, nice to meet you. Why don't you take a seat? Do you have any memories of shame during childhood? No, we'd had kind of four weeks by then. And if you've had counselling, you'll know the drill. You go in with a presenting issue. My life was unravelling somewhat. I was struggling to put the pieces back together. I needed help. So we spent the first few weeks talking about this stuff. And you might have experienced this in counselling. After a while, the kind of counsellor breaks it to you, hopefully gently. We've been talking about this, but it's, it's way worse than you realize because that isn't really the big issue the big issue is over here and it's really bad Um, and for me obviously that was something around the issue of shame hence the question do you have any memories from childhood of experiencing shame so I give it a a minute or so to think any memories come to mind experiencing shame in childhood and I respond to the counselor not really which is an open door for a therapist like not really so there was something And I basically say, yes, something came to mind, but it's not really that significant. To which the counsellor responded, let me be the judge of that. Um, Not in a creepy way. Um, So I said, and I thought this would come out through laughter, but it actually came out through deep tears. I, I, I basically said, when I was 11 years old, I still used to wet my bed. And, and as the words come out of my mouth, I, I, I start sobbing uncontrollably. And all these memories of shame like start rushing through my mind. I remember being 11 years old. I played for the county football team. We did a tour of the, the north of the country playing teams like Leeds and Sheffield and other northern cities. And as an 11-year-old on tour, I remember wet in the bed and going to the coach in the morning feeling really embarrassed, saying, I know this is embarrassing. I've, I've, I've wet the bed. He didn't respond well, and I felt shame and I remember as 11 year old going to my best mate's house a guy called Clive um, and I remember waking up and the bed was wet and thinking oh it's happened again for flip's sake and I chat to the dad and say look I know this is a bit embarrassing but I've wet the bed he didn't respond that great and I felt shame now I stand here in my early 40s I've been controlling that magic muscle for over 30 years and I'm proud of that that's an accomplishment right but here I am in therapy all the shame filling my body and I'm sobbing as I just call of that stuff to mind now shame is like swallowing this lie that we're unworthy of love 
And we all respond to shame differently. Here's how I responded to shame, even at a young age. I was like, right, well, I'm going to prove to the world that I'm worthy of love. And in terms of like academia, I worked hard. There was drive because I thought if I achieve something, I'm going to prove to the world, to my parents, to myself, ultimately that I am worthy of love. And there was drive. In terms of the sporting arena, I pushed myself for sporting excellence. I was like, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to prove prove to the world I'm worthy of love. In my early 20s, I took it into ministry, into preaching and leadership. I was like, do you know what? I'm going to prove to the church. I'm going to prove to the world, ultimately to myself, that I am worthy of love. I kept pushing. I kept driving. And here I am, 25 years old, in therapy, sobbing uncontrollably, shame unraveling my life. Like that felt like a moment of breakdown, mini breakdown, but a moment of breakdown nonetheless. But more than just being a moment of breakdown, it felt like a moment of breakthrough. Like honestly, that was the beginning of a redemption story in my life. I'm still living that story out. But I experienced a measure of healing and, and restoration because what I realized is beneath my rock bottom were the arms of God. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 40, it basically says of God that he lifts us from the pit, from the mud and the mire. He puts our feet on a solid rock and he puts a new song in our hearts. That's true and that's my testimony. But before God lifts us out of the pit, he embraces us in the pit. That's what was happening as a 25-year-old was trying to figure out, God, where the heck are you? I began to experience his love and his love led me to life. You need to know about Psalms of intimacy. They begin in the struggle. They begin in the darkness. They begin in the pit. We tend to hear them on the other side of redemption when people have experienced their breakthrough and they tell the story and we're like, that's amazing, praise God. He's a liberator, he's a deliverer. We fail to realise the song of intimacy began in the pit, in the midst of the struggle. And what does the, the song of intimacy, what does the sound of intimacy sound like? Um, it sounds something like this. Daddy, daddy. I, I hear that every night, by the way. We got three kids. Our, our youngest kid, she times it perfectly, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. Not talking some evenings like Every single night, 3 or 4 a.m., daddy. So I get out of bed eventually. She'll just keep going until I get out of bed. So I know now, get out of bed. I walk through to her room and I say, Olive, be quiet. I'm joking, by the way. Of course, I don't do that. Some of you are thinking, brilliant. I love that style of parenting. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Brilliant philosophy. Yes. No, I, I, I don't do that. I, I walk into her room. I get into bed. I give her a cuddle. And then we both fall to sleep and we wake up in the morning, right? It's a moment of intimacy. It begins with, Daddy. Why does she want me there? Because she's scared. What is she scared of? She's scared of the dark. Why are people scared of the dark? Why are kids scared of the dark? And the answer is they're scared of the unknown and they're scared of being alone. 
Now, let's just compare darkness with daytime. Now, the two key features of the daytime, at least for a child, is clarity and company. Because of sunlight, you can see your surroundings. You can see everything around you. And because of dependency level for kids, you're always in the company of others. There's mom, there's dad, there's friends, there's teachers, there's siblings. Someone's always around when you're a young kid. But when your parents or a carer puts you to bed, they turn off the lights. And for the first time in 12 hours, you're alone. And you can't really see your surroundings. So you're not sure. Maybe there is a monster under the bed. I can't see. And that weird shadowy figure in the corner, is it my teddy or is it a goblin? Like I genuinely don't know. So the fear levels begin to rise. Things are unknown. I'm alone. Daddy. Daddy. It's the most consistent cry of the Psalms, by the way. As the psalmist basically cries out to God like, help, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. And before he reaches down and lifts us out of the mud and the mire, he reaches down and embraces us in the mud and the mire. Before clarity emerges, he blesses us with his company, his presence. And that's why intimacy begins in the pit. That's why this 25-year-old unraveling shame, like just causing a, a fair amount of disruption to my life, suddenly the love of God penetrates and I experience intimacy, his everlasting arms. God gives us with his company before he gives us with his clarity. So in the same way that the embrace of God precedes the rescue of God, it's the songs of intimacy that precede the dawn. In fact, it's our cries, Daddy, that awaken the dawn. Listen to these words. This is Pete Gregg, um, an amazing writer. He wrote this blog post commenting on this quote. Faith is the bird that feels the light and sings when the dawn is still dark. So this is his blog post on this quote. He says this. Most mornings I have the window wide to welcome the wild ecstatic hallelujah at the start of each new day. The song thrust first, actually a while before any light at all appears in the night sky. But then the hidden orchestra strikes up, blackbird crescendoing with wren, robin riffing with chaffinch. Birds sing before sunrise, I'm told, because they've been woken by the cold and it's not yet light enough to hunt for food or a mate. They sing when they are constrained, cold and desperate, in anticipation rather than celebration. Once satiated, they are silent. We are communicants in this mystery, participants in this moment when the sweetest, most startling hallelujah arises. Contrary to anything we ever expected, in the darkness preceding the dawn, in the shivers that yearn for a sunrise, the hunger before the feast. You see, it's, it's in the darkness it's in the night time. It's in the moment of fear, in the moment of brokenness, we begin to lift our voice because we're cold, because we're desperate, and the song awakens the dawn. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 57, awake my soul, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. It's the intimacy that precedes the breakthrough, and then the intimacy follows the breakthrough. 
So let's look at some Psalms where we see that this song of intimacy anticipates the dawn before it celebrates its arrival. This is Psalm 57. Now the context for this Psalm, by the way, is King David, he's anointed at a young age to be king over Israel. And then it's over 14 years till he thrones um, to become the actual king over Israel. That's 14 years of waiting, 14 years of wrestling. Like, God, was that legit? Is it ever actually going to come to pass? Have you ever had that, like a promise, where you begin to question, will that promise become a reality? And in the waiting, there is constant struggle. And one of the struggles is that David's mentor, the actual king of that time, King Saul, becomes envious of the favour that's marking out David's life. And he basically decides, you know what, I I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going to take David out. I don't want him to be heir apparent. I'm going to... I'm going to take his life. So he hunts down David. And David ends up hiding in a cave, freaking out, thinking he's going to die. And then he pens this psalm, a psalm from the pit. So let's try and emotionally engage in this psalm, right? So David writes, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. And listen to what it feels like to David. He says, I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men like Saul, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Now you might think, chill out, David. Like that's hyperbole. But have you ever been in a moment where your anxiety is so intense? You're like, this is just going to take over my life. Like this attack or oppression that I'm under, I don't think I'm going to survive. I don't think I'm ever going to get through this. Have you ever experienced moments like that? This isn't hyperbole. This is actually how David is feeling. He says in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for me. I was bowed down in distress. Like I, I was on my knees, desperate. They dug a pit in my path, but they've fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. How cool is that? Like, we... I don't know about you, I know what I'd be like if I was in the cave. Like, where the heck are you, God? I've been trying to follow you, trying to be reliant on your faithfulness, trying to be obedient to your commands, like, give me a break. I'm not sure I'd be worshipping, lifting my song in a song of intimacy. But that's what David's doing, right? This is the song that awakens the dawn. Following verse, verse 8, Awake my soul, awake up and lie, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's a pretty amazing model of how to navigate life in the pit. Daddy, Daddy. You know, we all tend to outgrow fear of the dark, but none of us really outgrow the fear of the unknown. 
and the fear of being alone. We basically project on something bigger, the fear of death, which is the ultimate unknown, the ultimate disconnection, life without our loved ones. And it begins to take over. Like, How do we respond in moments like that? Well, Dave would be like, here's a model. Daddy, daddy. So how does that story end? He cries out from the pit. That's Psalm 57. And then the story follows that God delivers him. Great news. And then he writes another psalm. David's just constantly writing psalms, right? So Psalm 18 is a celebration. But notice the song begins in the pit. Begins in the struggle. It's amplified beyond redemption. But it begins in the struggle. And Psalm 18 starts like this. I love you, Lord, my strength. I'm just going to repeat that. I love you, Lord, my strength. I know, because I've been around long enough, that a lot of followers of Jesus struggle to say those kinds of words. They'd rather say, I reverence you, Lord my rock. I magnify you. I glorify you. I worship you. But this love stuff, it just, God is a love, it's kind of like, it's a bit too much for me. Not, not for David. Because David knew the power of intimacy, experiencing the embrace of God in such a way that leads to life. So he, he just celebrates the awakening of the dawn, says, I love you. Yes, worship, reverence, magnify, glorify, but I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord, Daddy. I, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. And he begins to articulate what it felt like. And some of us who've experienced chronic anxiety, trauma, oppression, you might relate to this. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. Daddy. Sometimes life feels like that. When people experience deep traumas, like, I feel like I'm suffocating. I'm not going to get through this. The waters are overwhelming me. Listen to how David continues. From the temple, he heard my voice, because God always hears the cries of his people. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes. He drew me out of the deep waters. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Let's just grab hold of those last few words. He rescued me because he delighted in me. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus for you. So like the embrace of the Father is the end goal of redemption, but it's also the means of redemption. Before he reaches down and lifts us from the pit, he embraces us in the pit. That's the message of the cross. The arms of God outstretched, like dying for our sins so that we could be reconciled to the Father and experience his embrace. And the embrace leads us to fullness of Life. This is David's like testimony. I realized that God rescued me, not just because he wants to use me, that somehow I might be effective in his purposes. No, he rescued me because he really likes me, because he loves me. He actually delights in me. 
And as a 25-year-old in therapy, this realization that God didn't just want to use me in his purposes. He just wanted relationship with me because he actually delighted in me. That, that was a game changer, an absolute game changer. It's why this piece of art, hopefully it'll come up on the screen, is one of my favorite bits of art. I'm a huge fan of Charlie Mackesy because I think he captures grace like very few artists capture grace. This is his picture of the prodigal daughter. He's done a similar one in a series um, on the prodigal son. But just look at that embrace. Wouldn't you love to experience an embrace like that? Look at the father, look at the guns, just holding secure, absolutely beautiful, like a picture of refuge and, and safety and, and restoration. I, I love how he grabs hold of grace in his art. And I've always wanted to own a Charlie Maxey piece. And a few years ago, I was given a Charlie Mack piece, which was like a really beautiful moment for me. And I want to tell you the story of how I was given this piece of art. So a friend of mine was at KXC, and she was making a film. And Charlie Mack was working on the film, providing some sketches, some mood boards, to depict certain scenes in the film. And in one of these scenes, a girl walks into the back of a church. She's hammered. She's high in a moment of complete brokenness. And as she stumbles into the back of church, there's a preacher at the front preaching on the subject of death and she begins to tune into the the talk and begins to encounter something of grace so my friend basically said um that's the scene would you be able to write a seven minute talk on death and if you know me some of you know me you know that would require a miracle 27 minute sermon would be you know amazing 37 maybe but a seven minute sermon I don't do seven minute sermons by the way and you're experiencing that right now I do not do seven minute sermons but it, a miracle took place I did a seven minute sermon on death um, and I, I wrote it down I sent it to her I want to read you some of the emails because I basically said what a gift it is to be involved in this project and I love that you and, and, and Charlie Mack have this disdain for religiosity and a curiosity about grace and count me in for this project. Anyway, she says this in an email. You mentioned before that I have a disdain for religiosity and you're right. I hope to somehow serve the film I'm making by identifying what religiosity looks like and in contrast and more importantly what an expression of God can look like, something more humble, honest, grace-filled, inclusive and encouraging. The church scene itself will be very short. A female character, after a massive, regrettable, drug-fueled rave in a forest, will stumble in the back of the church out of curiosity and catch the end of a sermon, which she's surprisingly soothed and inspired by. I want people to also be soothed by the snippet. No pressure. It's an old, echoey church with the ornate, velvety-type offering bags with the wooden handles. It gets passed to her and she pukes in it. So that's the scene I was asked to write this sermon for. Now just picture the scene then, high, hammered, broken, stumbling into the back of church, grabs the offering bag and... Whoa! How would Jesus respond in a moment like that? There's a Pharisee in each of us, right? So if you think that Jesus probably shouldn't respond with grace that probably shouldn't respond by actually wiping away the vomit, pulling that girl into the most incredible embrace, making her a cup of coffee, saying, where does it hurt? How can I help? Where do you need healing? If you think Jesus shouldn't respond like that, you might be right. If you think he wouldn't respond like that, you are entirely wrong. Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus always starts 
with grace. Welcome home. Clear away the vomit. Let's have a coffee. Where does it hurt? How can I help? So I begin to write this sermon for that scene. Um, And she ends up giving me the piece of art that Charlie Mack did. Hopefully it will come up on the screen. Um, So this is what Charlie Mack did as a kind of mood board for this scene. This girl walks in. She's leaning over the pew as she's embracing this moment in church. And my friend wrote me this email. I was there when Charlie drew this after we talked about the scene. His interpretation looks to me a lot like someone leaning on the balcony at the top of the KXE Ethiopian church space which is apt because the drawing was meant to serve as a representation of your audience. Who you write and preach for, those who come to KXE, spiritually almost crawling on their hands and knees for one last shot on 1% battery to connect with God, their lifestyle and hearts and build a genuine community. Often before I come to KXE to preach, I glance across in our living room and I look at the picture and I'm like that's who I'm preaching for because there will be someone who walks in at the back potentially hammered high and broken waiting to experience judgment and I want them to experience grace I want them to come in with one percent battery left and be overwhelmed by an embrace and before God lifts them from the mud and the mind puts their feet on solid rock and puts a noose on in their heart I want them to experience experience the embrace of God because that's what I experienced as a 25 year old and it changed my life you know we started KXC 11 years ago and um, we grew pretty fast but we didn't grow from lots and lots of people coming to faith in Jesus for the first time I wish that was our story but if I'm being really honest it wasn't really we saw a chunk of that but not lots nor did we grow through keen Christians hearing there's a new church on the block let's go there and let's plug in serve and give lots of money that didn't happen that would have been great would have loved that but that didn't really happen for whatever reason God summoned a load of people who had one percent battery left longing to experience grace and with their final one percent they lifted up a cry daddy afraid of the unknown afraid of being alone Daddy, and they experienced an embrace. And this psalm, song of intimacy, of worship began to rise. And as more and more people heard the song and the testimonies of lies being restored, they're like, I I want that. I want to experience that embrace. I want that level of transformation. The cry, Daddy, began to ring out. People began to come. The church began to grow. It's a story of redemption. Now, the reason I tell you that is because we're at a moment, a cultural moment, where many of us feel like we're at 1%. Some of us need a holiday, right? Some of us, it's going to take more than a holiday. We need to encounter God. Some of us are here right now thinking, I got 1%. Okay, 1% is enough, right? The question is, what are you going to do with your 1%? This is what Jesus said, faith as small as a mustard seed. Like, that's enough. The 1% is enough. What are you going to do with the 1%? And here's my encouragement. Lift your voice. Lift your hands in worship. Cry out to the God who is faithful to every promise, who is powerful to save. And when he hears the daddy, he reaches, he embraces, 
He lifts us from the pit. And our testimony, our story, will become the story of David, who famously in Psalm 23 said, look, here's how it works. God meets us in the darkest of valleys, the valley of the shadow of death, and he leads us through to green pastures, to still waters where our souls find deep replenishment. That story can be your story. How? In the middle of the struggle. Daddy. Daddy.